Today we bring you a slightly different variation of the Innovation Show. This was an episode of the Disruptive Voice podcast where I was hosted by Katie Zambergen who runs that podcast and hosts it on a regular basis. That podcast is dedicated to the work of Clayton Christensen and Katie kindly invited me onto the show to discuss my lessons learned from the recent Clayton Christensen series that we ran here on the Innovation Show. I learned so much from it. It was an absolute privilege. And the biggest lesson I wanted to share with you, I don't think I mentioned this in the episode with Katie, is that reading the books in the sequence that I read them and reading all the associated articles and going down so many rabbit holes gave me a set of lenses that was just magnificent and has bolstered me in my own work as a consultant and a keynote speaker to be even more concrete in the work that I give to my clients. That was a huge privilege. Also writing about it because I wrote about each episode and each book as I progressed through the series. And again, that was just a magnificent way to consolidate the learning. It was an absolute privilege to meet the people that were involved, co-authors of Clayton Christensen, but also to meet some in person here in Dublin Matt Christensen flew over to Dublin here to especially to record with me, as did Rita McGrath, as did Hal Gregerson. Absolutely wonderful people. And I was struck by how nice those people were to work with. For now, I'm going to hand over to the capable hands of Katie, and I'll see you very soon where Karen Dillon is our next guest on The Innovation Show with her book, The Microstress Effect. You can win a copy, by the way. Just sign up to our Substack innovation show newsletter. See you very soon. Hello, my name is Katie Zanbergen, and I produce and sometimes host The Disruptive Voice. The podcast's mission is to explore Clayton Christensen's theories of disruptive innovation across a wide range of industries and circumstances. Through these conversations, we aim to show that Clay's frameworks are highly relevant, broadly applicable, and deeply powerful. Our guests have been inspired by Clay and his work, and as Clay himself says in the podcast's introduction, they are working to put his theories to use in their lives and in their organizations. I was first introduced to Aidan McCullen and to the Innovation Show in the summer of 2022, when Michael Horn reached out to let me know that Aidan was putting together a three-month series on the Innovation Show that's dedicated to the life, work, and theories of Clayton Christensen. The rest, as they say, is history. It's been a pleasure to work with Aiden over the last few months and to listen to the wonderful series that he's put together. And the icing on the cake is that he's agreed to be a guest on The Disruptive Voice, as you'll soon hear. To those of you tuning in to the podcast for the first time via The Innovation Show, welcome. I hope you enjoy listening. And if you have feedback or suggestions or thoughts to share, please do reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thank you for the collaboration, Aidan, and thank you to all of you, our listeners. Without further ado, I give you the disruptive voice. Hi, this is Clay Christensen, and I want to welcome you to a podcast series we call The Disruptive Voice. In this podcast, we explore the theories that are featured in our course here at HBS, Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. In each episode, we'll talk to alumni of our course and others who are trying to put these theories to use in their lives and in their organizations. 
It's great fun to hear from them, and I hope that you find these conversations inspiring and useful. Hello, and welcome to The Disruptive Voice. My name is Katie Zambergen, and today I'm delighted to welcome Aidan McCullen as a guest on the podcast. This designation as a guest puts Aidan in a different chair from the one he's usually sitting in, as Aidan is host of The Innovation Show, which is an insightful podcast designed to share fresh information and to empower new thinking. In fact, regular listeners of The Disruptive Voice will recognize Aidan's voice from our last episode, where he hosted Matt Christensen on the show, and the two took a deep dive into The Innovator's Dilemma. That episode with Matt is the first in a three-month series that Aidan has put together that's dedicated to the life, work, and theories of Clayton Christensen, and we'll learn more about that series in just a moment. Aidan, a former professional rugby player, is not only host of The Innovation Show, but is also a change consultant working with organizations to help them improve how they collaborate and how they work to create an environment that's more open to change. Specifically, Aidan believes that you can't change business models until you first change mental models, which has led him to work in the fields of not only digital transformation and innovation, but also culture and leadership. Furthermore, Aidan teaches a module on emerging technology trends at Trinity College Dublin's Business School, and he's the author of the book, Undisruptible, a Mindset of Permanent Reinvention for Individuals, Organizations, and Life, which we will certainly discuss today. I'm thrilled to have him as a guest on the podcast. Aidan, welcome to The Disruptive Voice. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Katie. Thank you so much. Now, Aidan, though you never had the chance to meet Clay in person, you have, like so many others, myself included, been inspired by his life and his work. Can you tell us about when you first came across Clay's research and also what were your initial impressions of what you read? Well, it's been an absolute honor to revisit Clay's work, but for me, it started actually with seeing what's next. And what I was doing was I had retired from that career you mentioned in professional sport, and I was working in digital transformation for a media company, and I was looking for help. And as anybody does, what do you do? Google it. <laughs> and I went to Google and I found seeing what's next. And then I bought the audiobook and it was just new language for me, a new way of thinking. It helped me realize that this doesn't have to be guesswork and that you will make mistakes as you fail your way towards success. And it was just revolutionary for me. And I fell in love with the work. And it was just so, so helpful because, as I mentioned, and I noticed this throughout Clay's work, it gave a common language and it gave me the gift of being the person who brought that common language to our organization. So we knew how to even categorize things and how to talk about things and how to realize that this was really an inflection point in the business and we had to really lean into it. You mentioned making the shift from being a professional rugby player into more of the business world. And I want to get more into that because it's so relevant to so much of what we'll be discussing today. But before doing so, I'd like to first ask you specifically about your podcasting work. In introducing you today, I mentioned the podcast that you host called The Innovation Show and how you're currently in the midst of a three-month series that is dedicated to Clay's life and work. Can you tell listeners a bit more about the series and why you decided to launch it? I was always wanting to get Clay on the show. He is one of my heroes of innovation and one of the inspirations behind the show, as he is for so many. And I was saddened by his passing. And in my show, you'll notice I have a bookshelf behind me when I don't record in person with somebody. But when I do the weekly show, I have a bookshelf and the bookshelf's full of amazing writings. And I was just one day looking at those books, Clay's books, and I was thinking to myself, 
what if I did this idea and brought them together? But also on a personal note, wouldn't it be amazing to actually read them in chronological order? That to me is fascinating. And I just felt what a way to pay tribute to the work. And then I started to piece the pieces together. You were an integral part in that. And again, my thanks to you. I mentioned that when I had the honor of interviewing Matt here in Dublin. But it's been revelationary in many ways, because every time you read any of the work, you get a new little nudge in a different direction, and you spot something that you had not previously thought of. And I often think of the old quote, Heraclitus in 500 BC, he said that no man ever walks in the same river twice, because it's not the same river, and he's not the same man, because you keep evolving, and the environment keeps changing. And every time you have an experience, it changes who you are, and then changes your experience with the environment. And I felt that having had so much water under the bridge, and excuse the pun of <laughs> Heraclitus and his river, I had a real amazing opportunity to revisit the work, having had experiences in the struggles of transformation work and the struggles that organizations and leaders and individuals go through when they try to transform or they try to lean into personal disruption or business disruption. And that was a remarkable thing because I was saying this to you today, Katie, I spoke to Hal Gregerson today as part of that series. He flew again into Dublin. It's an absolutely beautiful episode. Hal reveals some beautiful things about Clay. And I was saying to Hal, going right back to even decipher, I was like an investigative journalist trying to figure out how did he put these together? What were the elements that led to the innovator's dilemma? And then you discover things like Rita McGrath flew into Dublin as well. And she's a part of the innovator's dilemma because she inspired the whole idea of discovery driven growth and planning. And you start to put pieces together. And then you start to spot Kim Clark in the books and in the reading. And then you start to spot Joe Bauer in there. And you start to piece together the pieces. And that was a fascinating thing. But the piece you're always missing is that's almost like Clay's report card but you're missing Clay on the track, experiencing life and putting these theories into place and trying out his own things. And that's just been absolutely fascinating. And I think what a beautiful way to pay homage and, and legacy and to keep that work out there on another platform as well as the disruptive voice and make sure that people hear it and bring it to new audiences. That's the goal behind the project. And it's just an absolute honor. Right. And showing how the frameworks are so dynamic and relevant, perhaps more relevant than ever in this world of complexity and change. I'd like to slightly shift gears now to your own book, which was published in 2021 and is entitled Undisruptible, A Mindset of Permanent Reinvention for Individuals, Organizations, and Life. To begin, can you tell listeners more about your own background and the professional experiences that you've had and how these have informed both your decision to write the book? and also the content of the book, particularly as those experiences relate to this notion of permanent reinvention. Uh, it's funny, I, I start the book talking about the idea of lenses. And I often used to think about experiences I've had in life. For example, I went to learn in France, I speak French and German, I studied in college in Germany, I played professional rugby in France a couple of times and in London and here in Ireland. And I've had a really very lucky life. I've had a lot of experiences and a lot more to come as well. And the way I kind of articulated that in my own head was, 
it's like that contraption that you get put on your eyes when you're getting an eye test. But every time you have a new experience, it's a lens that gets put in place, but stays there. And then you get another lens and then you get another one every time you try new things. And even the things that don't work out are valuable because they tell you, well, that's not what you like, or that's not the way to go. So they're valuable lenses. And we tend to try to mask them or hide them and, and not expose them and kind of go, yeah, well, I made that mistake. But what it taught me was X, Y, Z, because the lessons in what did you learn from it? And the book is really that collection of lenses of not just my own experience. And it's not about me. The book is definitely not about me. You can't not be in your own book, but it's a collection of all the brilliant people I've interviewed. I've been doing the innovation show for seven years. I haven't missed a week in seven years. I also then every week write an article loosely based on the show or something that's bubbled to the top of my mind or has marinated over a few weeks or years, and I'll write about it. And every so often, if you do that, if you're weekly writing for seven years, something's going to pop out, maybe a book, for example. And that's what happened here. And what I tried to do with the book is I think in metaphor, I tried to find a metaphor that articulates what a great mind like Clay was saying, for example. And I translate that into a more accessible language, I think, for a different audience. And that's very key. It's not for necessarily the same audience. And I say that at the start of the book, this is not a book that's going to teach you as a, a magnificent innovator or professor in college, new ways of thinking, but it might give you a different metaphor to use to be able to articulate to somebody so they get it. Because there's nothing better in the work that we do in innovation and workshopping and keynotes, when you see somebody getting it, it's this breakthrough moment and you can see it on their face. And sometimes that's elation because they go, yeah, we're going to do this. We're into this new world. But sometimes it's also a moment of melancholy when they realize, oh, the way we've done things in the past is no longer relevant. We're going to have to change things and that's going to bring pain. And it's full of quotes, for example, like to that point, the great poet and Nobel laureate Maya Angelou said, we rejoice in the beauty of the butterfly, but don't realize the pain and sacrifice it's gone through to achieve that beauty, because any type of transformation brings with it some type of pain. And oftentimes, the bigger the pain, the better the transformation. You mentioned this idea of metaphors as being a really useful way to bring ideas to life and make the information more accessible to broader audiences. And one metaphor that you use in the book that I really liked was this idea of here be dragons. You have a chapter on this, and in it you write, Centuries ago, map makers and cartographers didn't really know the true shape of the seas of land, and that sailors would often set out to sea with maps labeled with the Latin words, Ixun dracones, which means here be dragons. And it's such a great metaphor for so much of what you write about in the book. Can you elaborate on it? Yeah, I, I love that because the idea of the map, when I was writing that, Katie, I was thinking of, of as a child, I used to do this thing where I'd make these fake maps, treasure maps, and I used to take some like tea or tea bags and I'd soak it on a piece of paper to make the paper look old. And then I'd pretend I found my own map. <laughs> And I go, oh, there must be treasure here as a child. So that, that just tells you the type of kid I am. I am. I say that deliberately. And um, so I remember then seeing an article about that, here be dragons. And I was fascinated by what, the, what does that mean? And what it was, was like, well, we haven't gone here yet. We don't know what could be there. <laughs> we haven't navigated that. We haven't charted it. It's literally uncharted waters. So 
I was like, isn't that just a brilliant metaphor for where we go as human beings? Like we often embark on these odysseys into uncharted waters. And with the use of, for example, Clay's work, you can map some of that. You can actually try to figure out, okay, well, these are patterns that are repeatable. And with his hunting for anomalies, you know that he's, he's actually gone and sought out anomalies that you'll discover that hopefully you'll actually avoid because he's actually done the work for you. And I think that's the beauty of those ideas coming together. But for me, what I meant in that was as a leadership team, so many things hold back people from embarking on those odysseys. And I use the word odyssey purposefully because the difference between odyssey and journey is a journey has a distinct known destination, while an odyssey is about the joy of the voyage. And I think that's a very nice distinction for what we're talking about here. Because if you're taking into account, say, some of the characteristics and personality traits of The Innovator's DNA, that book by Hal Gregerson, Jeff Dyer, and Clay, you're discovery-driven, and you're curious, and you're inquisitive, and you want to see what's out there. But so many people are stricken by fear, and they don't embark on those odysseys. And they're afraid of, well, what if it doesn't work out? And what will others say about me? And the idea of the dragon is the dragon guards a princess, and it can't actually do anything with the princess. It can't embrace the princess in any way. It's about this idea of locked potential or latent potential, and that you're actually guarding yourself as well, that you're actually preventing yourself from embarking on these odysseys. And that to me is an absolute shame in life. And the more I've learned about Clay, to bring it back to Clay, the more I realize it seemed to be an odyssey in his life to help people find themselves and what truly is meaningful in life and what will make them complete themselves. And that's what I was trying to articulate with this is don't worry about the dragons. There are dragons out there. As soon as you embark on anything meaningful, you're going to meet them. But give yourself as much knowledge before you embark on that journey through perhaps reading books like this and understanding certain frameworks. Yes but you're still going to stumble upon these surprises. But don't recoil back into safety. The fact that you are meeting some type of resistance is a sign that you're pushing far enough. And the term I use in the book is any type of resistance like that is a milestone, not a millstone. Don't let it weigh you down. Realize that you're making progress. Yes, the organization's pushing back on my idea. Well, that's because it's probably revolutionary. Or I suggested this to my family that I want to embark on a mission to Africa and I got some type of resistance. Oh, it's dangerous there. Well, that's for me to decide and for me to find out. And it's my odyssey. And go for it is my message in the book because even when things don't work out, as I said, they become lenses through which to see in the future. And the term I use in the book is there's always assets in the ashes. That when something feels like it's a burnout, that it didn't work out, look in the ashes for what was valuable from that attempt, because there's always something. And this brings me back, Katie, to what you said about even the starting the show. The show for me started when I was a professional rugby player, when I got injured. When I got injured, I had this time that I could use, and I decided to do a course in music production, not knowing how that could ever play out for me in the future. But what it taught me was how to do sound production and how to do sound editing. And then years later, there was assets in the ashes when I decided to do the podcast and I could edit myself and I could sound correct as much as possible. 
And that's the <laughs> idea of assets in the ashes. And that's the idea of here be dragons. Don't be afraid of them. Maybe you could share the story of Amazon Fire as a great example of this notion of assets in the ashes, because it's an example that you used in the book. And for me reading it, I was like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. You know, I made it click. Yeah. So the examples do bring it to life. I suppose it's like Clay's case studies in many ways. So the example was that when Amazon tried to get into the smartphone business, they were actually pretty much ahead of the game. And they realized that they needed a product that they could get an instant feedback from, they could connect with their own customer base, etc. And the gentleman they had in charge of the project was a gent called Ian Freed. And Ian Freed was responsible for two projects at the time. And when they brought the Fire Phone to market, it was too late. Samsung had taken off. iPhone had a huge amount of the market at that stage, and it was an absolute flop. And excuse the pun that I used in the book, they had to get rid of it in a fire sale. In fact, they couldn't even really sell the Fire Phone. Nobody really wanted it. So the fact that Ian Freed was working on two projects was really, really useful. And this seems to be something that they are fond of in Amazon is moving people around the organization, almost like a bee moving from flower to flower, cross-pollinating. So cross-pollinating from different divisions, bringing different ideas, different skills, things that they discovered from the last failure, maybe not to do in this project, etc. And the product leader, Ian Freed, was also working on a smart speaker project. Now, when he looked in the failure, which was a $170 million write-off for the Amazon Fire phone, he looked to see what assets were in the ashes. And when he looked at that, he was like, well, we have voice control technology. And what if, and these are the beautiful what if questions that you have when you're at the intersections of things, what if we lifted that voice control technology from the Fire phone and put it into the smart speaker? And the voice control technology was called Alexa. The smart speaker wasn't called Alexa, but it's so synonymous with the smart speaker now that we call them Alexas. And this is an idea of, okay, you tried something, it didn't work, but what was the lesson from it? What is still valuable from it? Because you often tweak your way towards success. You pivot your way towards success. Clay, in one of his books, mentions that 33% or so of businesses don't end up the way they started out. They end up somewhere totally different. Their product is refined or changed in many, many ways. Take, for example, Clay's example. Let's use that of Honda. So Honda executives come over to the US intending to sell this Super Cub bike. Absolute flop. Nobody wants it because it's seen to be competing with Harley Davidson, who owns the roads across the States. So they keep trying, then they keep trying, trying to compete. And then exasperated one weekend, one of the executives goes for a ride in the hills of Hollywood on his Super Cub bike. These are little, little small bikes. They're like delivery bikes over in Asia at the time. And there was no market for them in the US, or so they thought. And when this exec goes out for the drive at the weekend to relieve the stress of not being able to sell the bike and compete with the Harley, somebody comments to him and goes, oh, what's that cool little dirt bike? light bulb goes off. And from the ashes of the attempt to compete with Harley Davidson, they discover actually there's a marker for this to a non-consumer as Clay would use, to a different audience, to a different market. And now I can start selling this Super Cub bike. And they started to sell them as dirt bikes and created a brand new market. And then it gets into the typical curve of growth where it starts to compete and starts to catch up with Harley Davidson and starts to become a competitor in a vastly different sense. But my point in sharing that story is, unless you have this mindset of there's always assets in the ashes, 
this Kintsugi mindset, you won't look for those opportunities from the mistake. And then to do that, you need to have psychological safety in an organization. You need to have a team full of people who are open to looking for those mistakes and not afraid to share them. And a leadership team that won't punish people for those mistakes as long as they have been carefully thought out and planned meticulously. You just mentioned this notion of Kintsugi thinking, which you also write about in the book. Can you tell listeners a bit more about what that is and how it's such a valuable lens in this increasingly volatile, complex world that we're operating in? So Kintsugi is this beautiful Japanese art where you'll see it sometimes. You'll see a piece of pottery or ceramics, and instead of the cracks being concealed, they're actually celebrated. So they use this golden lacquer. And Kintsugi just means golden joinery. So they celebrate the cracks. And this idea of Kintsugi thinking speaks to exactly what we're talking about is when there's mistakes there, as long as, again, they've been carefully thought out and you record them and you chronicle them so other people in the organization can also see, well, that's what not to do, but it might be what not to do in that context and it might work at a different time. Maybe you were too early with your idea. Maybe you launched it into the wrong market or like Honda discovered, they were trying to sell to the wrong consumption cohort so the opportunity lay with non-consumption. So this is the idea of Kintsugi thinking, but it takes, as Amy Edmondson talks about, psychological safety. You need a team of people to be able to willingly share mistakes and be able to go, look, this didn't work out for us, or this isn't working for us, or we've been trying with this project for a long time, it's not working, it's not getting any traction in this market. And I often think about the metaphor, which I didn't share in the book, of there's this beautiful thing that ants do. So ants are highly evolved species. They're around a lot longer than us. They're our elders in many ways. <laughs> They've survived many, many changes on the planet. And one of the things ants do is when they explore down a trail, they'll leave a pheromone that communicates to any other ant, don't waste your energy, I've tried down here, there's nothing down here. And one of the things I introduce into organizations I work with is this idea I call a Kintsugi wall. And the Kintsugi wall is just ideas that were tried for the organization before, but they're not, again, hidden. They're celebrated as attempts at innovation that didn't work. And I think that's really powerful on a personal level as well, because sometimes you might try something, you might try a certain career, you might go out with somebody, you might try a relationship, and it didn't work out. But there's also information in that. And the big shame is if you didn't learn something from that failed attempt. And we really need to change our relationship with failure because we have this awful relationship with failure it carries so many connotations. And this speaks to the thing in innovation about how powerful language is. I often think about leadership teams and I say to them, do you think you're sincere? And they all look at me and they're like, what's he talking about here? And the reason is, is because sincere comes from the Latin sincera. And sincera means without wax. And you're going to love this one, Katie, because this absolutely articulates it. In a time where sculptors would sculpt a statue, say, from some stone or marble. If they made a mistake, they'd cover the mistake, like a crack, for example, with wax. And sincera means without wax. And it basically means to be able to expose warts and all, mistakes and all, etc. So for a team of people to be sincere and be vulnerable and be able to share the mistakes that they have is a very powerful thing because it sends a message to the rest of the organization. 
And if we embrace the mistakes that are inevitable and symbiotic when it comes to innovation, we can actually get towards success much quicker. So you're really speaking about this intentional development of a mindset of permanent reinvention. And you've talked about reframing our fears as growing pains and reframing failures as opportunities to learn and so on. And in writing about this kind of intentional development of this mindset, you use the example of the S-curve. You write, typically, the S-curve is broken into three broad phases, growth, scale, and maturity. I like to break it into six distinct phases, with the emphasis on the crucial phase six, which is often overlooked. You also describe the sixth phase as being a counterintuitive blind spot. Can you share your reflections on this S-curve model and what you mean by breaking it into six phases with the greatest emphasis on the last of these? Most of your audience will have heard of S-curves. As Scott DeAnthony said to me, clay inside his glasses, he had in his lenses, he had that famous diagram (laughs) of disruptive innovation. And I'm sure he had S-curves inside those as well, because (laughs) it becomes a lens through which you see many different phenomena. And indeed, an S-curve, all it is, is a heuristic or mental model. And it can be used for a wide range of phenomena, like learning curves, for example, or growth curves in a career, or an organization, or indeed disruptive technology. And the usual broad phases are an initial start out phase, then a rapid growth phase, and then a decline phase where the top of the curve, it starts to peter out. And I like to break it into further phases. So I'll just briefly take you through this. So take, for example, an organization. So you want to bring a new product to market. Well, and this is the difficult part. Even if I do get onto the playing field, which is the S-curve, I have to get buy-in, I have to get some type of support financially or otherwise or time to be able to invest in this new idea. So I get to phase one, which is a development phase. So I'm able to build something, a minimal viable product. And then I move on to phase two, which is when I introduce it. And as Clay's work exposes, I don't often want to bring that to my existing clients because they may reject it particularly if they're looking for a sustaining innovation. So I bring it to market. I'm looking at this stage for a gap in the market. And if I'm successful at that stage, I move on to phase three, which is when I discover not only is there a gap in the market, there's a market in the gap that I have identified. And then I start to scale up and I start to get that product out to market. And then I get to a point of maturity. At this stage, my new product is reliable, I can count on it every year as a revenue stream. And then you get to a point of, well, I'm starting to plateau, I might try to bring that product to new markets, or I might go through sustaining growth when I try to add some new features to it, etc. So I'm at phase five, ultimately, a decline phase. And as we know, from all the work, all the literature, all the data, everything reaches this decline phase, including our own skill sets. And that's one of the things I tried to do in the book is go, this is not just about organizations. This is about us as individuals. So what do you do? Well, at this stage, you need to jump to a new curve. And this is phase six. And jumping to the new curve sometimes doesn't intersect. So that means there's a gap there. And as Derek Van Beaver, the regular contributor on this podcast, has identified, you need to jump to the new S-curve before you reach the decline phase. And when you look into that, 
you go, well, why? Well, apart from the fact that I have the finances to do so, or I can actually engage in many different ways in that I'm going to be more open to the mistakes that are inevitable when I try to invent something new. I often think about the organization as a corporate brain. And if you encounter some type of resistance or some types of decline where I'm in a decline phase and I need to make a Hail Mary pass in order to keep the organization alive, I'm going to be in a very, very different mindset than I would be if everything's going rosy and I'm in profitable stage. And what happens in those moments is your brain goes into fight or flight mode. And in fight or flight mode, blood is diverted from your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's responsible for sound decision making, to your fists for fight and your feet for flight. And you become less intelligent. And if organizations wait until those moments in order to look for new opportunities and to seek new markets and new customers and non-consumption, etc., it's too late because they're not going to make those decisions wisely. Yeah, and this is really the innovator's dilemma. Like, why should we be looking for new customers? Things are going great. And, you know, when you're at the peak of the curve, it's really where organizations struggle to explore new curves at the right time. And Katie, I think that goes for an individual as well. If you embrace this idea of continuous learning, and as I say in the book, permanent reinvention, keep adding new skills, try things out, eclectic reading, that's why I mentioned the idea of the music editing earlier. You don't know how that's going to play out in the future, but it's definitely going to help somehow. And the more you like that skill or the more you like that hobby, if it's a hobby, the more you're going to devote time to it. And the more time you devote to it, the better you're going to become at it. Because one of the ways I think about this idea of the parallel S-curves or the idea of the innovator's dilemma is build capability before you need it. Because when you need it, it's going to be too late. You're going to be in that fight or flight mode or you've missed the opportunity. You've handed it to some startup or some other organization who got there ahead of you. And I think about the Spartan warrior mantra, and this probably comes from my rugby playing days, the more you sweat in times of peace, the less you bleed in war, because it's too late. And for an individual, if you stop learning and you stop upskilling and you stop unlearning, importantly, and you suddenly encounter some type of crises like a redundancy, you're going to make a flawed decision and you're going to jump at the first opportunity available. Rather than if the rug gets pulled from under your feet, you already have another rug under there. You're not left unawares. And I think that's a really important aspect of all this work. And in terms of the timing component of thinking about developing capabilities, in the book, you write about VUCA, V-U-C-A, as being very indicative of the times we're living in. Could you tell listeners a bit about VUCA, what you mean by it, and also why it instills this almost sense of urgency to be developing capabilities for the future, which is coming at us very quickly? Yeah, so VUCA is a term that was introduced by the American War College after the Cold War to describe the socio-political landscape and the ambiguity of the world. So it means volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And funnily enough, itself as a term has been disrupted in the last couple of years. It's been bumped out of the way by another term called BANI, which is brittleness, anxiety, non-linearity and incomprehensibility. <laughs> so uh, even the terms are being disrupted these days, Katie, it's difficult out there. But VUCA for me is very much just a reminder of never to get too comfortable. And people say to me oftentimes, oh, do you never get tired? Do you never just sit back and relax and enjoy it? 
And I think that's the whole idea of get comfortable with it because human beings are magnificent innovators as a species. At one stage, there were something like 20,000 mating pairs of humans left. We were an endangered species and we have been magnificent evolutionary beings. We've survived and this is in our DNA. And this period of the post-war is an anomaly in place speaking in some way. It's been a period of relative peace and relative lack of recession compared to other times in the world. And just like a muscle would atrophy if you don't use it, we've atrophied somewhat in our mental approaches to our mental flexibility and are becoming a little bit too comfortable. And VUCA is a reminder of, go back to the idea of the ship and its odyssey, you're never in port you're always exploring and enjoying the journey because on the journey, you're going to have surprises. And that's what life should be about is encountering those things. Yes, enjoy it, but realize that there's always a surprise around the corner and be ready. And I don't mean in a paranoid way, but lean into it and enjoy it. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about life. Yeah. And just this idea that we need to be reinventing in permanence and not just at a certain point on the S-curve. And in the book, you talk about this notion of Ouroboros, which essentially is the next step in the S-curve development. And it looks like a number eight on its side, right? It's the infinity symbol. Do you want to comment on Ouroboros and how you think about it in the context of the work that you're doing? So I was so lucky. I, I give keynotes and I run workshops and the illustrations in the book. So this will just give our audience an idea of how I tried to make the book so accessible. I hired for the book a children's story illustrator to do all the illustrations. But to do that, I sent him a lot of images. So I did really, really childish illustrations like stick men and stuff like that. And I noticed when I was writing the S-curve, so the way I do the S-curve is kind of very much stretched. And I was thinking about this idea of, well, the organization at a certain point at the S-curve needs to cannibalize itself is one thing. But in doing so, it's using its former self in order to feed its future becoming. So what I mean there is this term Ouroboros is an ancient symbol of a snake eating its own tail. And it's a symbol of rebirth and regeneration, because as Carl Jung said, the Ouroboros needs to consume itself in order to complete itself or to renew itself. And we're doing that all the time as human beings. Like we talk about how the snake sheds its own skin. Human beings shed our own skin on a regular basis. We're constantly shedding cells over and over. We're constantly renewing and our bodies are doing that. But the question is, are our minds doing that as well? And the Ouroboros for me is the S-curve doubled back on itself. So it actually uses itself to complete itself into the future. And it becomes this infinity curve because this is not a journey where there's an end point. It's an odyssey that keeps going and going. And I might introduce another metaphor that I use here, Katie, which is the idea of the immortal jellyfish. Toratoptus dornai, which is just a beautiful creature, because I wanted to share that because that came from my son. So the, the great metaphor I was leaning upon for the book was the phoenix. And the phoenix, of course, is this mythical creature that every 500 years willingly walks into the flames, burns itself up, and from the ashes gathers what was useful from its previous incarnation. And that's the idea of there's assets in the ashes. And my son came up to me one day and he's like, Dad, I don't think you should talk about the phoenix anymore. You, you're talking to these intelligent people. He was only 10 at the time, Katie. And I was like, on and going, what? Why, son? And he's like, on, well, dad, the phoenix is a myth. 
people aren't going to believe it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> the, kid, the kid has a point from the mouths of babes. So I looked at something different in the book, which is the caterpillar, which I'm not going to talk about, because he, my son, came forward and he goes, Dad, you notice this thing tore a top to Dornai? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. And this is what this amazing creature does. Now, as I talk about this, think of the S-curve shape, the S on its side. So a normal jellyfish's life cycle is it starts off as this kind of blobby polyp thing, and then it kind of becomes tubular and it becomes bigger and bigger. And then it either gets eaten through predation or some type of disease as it gets older and older. Now, the Toratoptus dornai, the immortal jellyfish, has been shown in scientific conditions, as in there's no predation, no disease, that it can actually regenerate itself forever. And I was like, absolutely fascinated by this. So I looked at it, it's true, this creature, when it goes up to the point of a normal jellyfish, or it encounters some type of natural change, like really cold waters or some type of natural disaster, what it does is it plunges right back down to the bottom of the ocean again. And think about going back down to the bottom of the S-curve and it explodes itself up again. So it actually unbundles itself into these polyps again and it goes through the life cycle all over again until it encounters that type of change or that type of natural disaster again. And then it plunges down and it just goes like this infinity curve to the top of the S-curve, encounters some type of change down to the bottom again, starts again, starts again. And for me, that is the essence of this idea of the Ouroboros combined with the idea of the immortal jellyfish. You cover a lot of ground in Undisruptible, and the book is full of so many great examples and insights. But I'm wondering, of everything that can be found in those pages, what do you most hope readers will take away from reading the book? Well, I think, if anything, and, and I probably... I was a bit ambitious in the book in that I, I'm trying to show, look, the same things that you encounter in an organization are the same things you encounter on an individual level. And I really thought about this actually recently doing the series for Clay, because that's really what he was doing with how will you measure your life? All the theories are applicable to you as an individual. Jobs to be done. I think very differently about my relationship at home to my wife and my children now. I'm like, what job am I doing for them? How do I serve them? And I think that's what I was trying to do with the book is, I think one of the biggest shames in life is to live a life unfulfilled or a life whose script you didn't write, or even worse, a script that you don't even star in. I think we all should be the stars of our own life scripts. And if you don't like it, rewrite it. And by that, I mean, reframe it sometimes, because you can start to see things differently and writing is such a beautiful way to do that, I think, is just reframe things differently in order to be able to navigate them and to make sense of them. And that's what I want to do with this book is inspire people to realize that, yes, there's dragons. Yes, you'll make mistakes and you'll encounter fire phone moments in life, but there's always assets in the ashes and you can pick yourself up. Don't be defined by a record of your past, but instead embrace your vision of the future. Always be becoming. And that's the concept of permanent reinvention. In the book you wrote, and I quote, I count myself lucky because I suffered a raft of injuries and disappointments during my career, which helps me realize that a sports career is just a cycle in a long life of cycles to come. 
since your days as a professional rugby player, you've gone on to become a digital media expert, an innovation and change consultant, a podcast host, and a professor at Trinity College Dublin. I'm wondering, what's next for you? What capabilities are you currently working to build, and how are you thinking about reinventing yourself? Well, one of my focuses this year is e-learning and platform creation on a level of the work that I do. And that's inspired again. You know, you talk to Clark Gilbert, Kim Clark, and the work they've done. You talk to Michael Horn, and you realize that scaling your efforts is the way to go. And it's just another business model. So that's something that I'm definitely doing. But I think this year, I'm going to put it in a personal level. And this goes to the whole idea of build capabilities before you need it. I'm accumulating this amount of knowledge and I'm hopefully making it accessible, like you're doing, Katie, with the show, is keeping knowledge alive to empower other people. But I often think of what would my 90 or 100 or 110 year old self say to me if they were to appear to me and kind of go, hey, Aiden, thank you for doing this and this and this. What would they say? What would those things be? So one of those things I'm really focused on is to be physically capable to carry my brain, as in work on my physique for the future. And this is the difficult thing. This is where it's very much like disruption. It's letting go of the person I used to be who was in the gym, beefing up, you know, a bit of a meathead, <laughs> working on muscles. That's ego-driven stuff. And instead, working on stuff like the connective tissues, the ligaments, the muscles that help for stability. And that's hidden stuff. That's stuff that's not so visible today, but is absolutely valuable for tomorrow. And the concept I think there is, do you take the stairs or the escalator? And while you have not only the ability to, but the privilege to be able to take the stairs, take the stairs, build that muscle for when you might need to take the escalator in the future. And actually, by taking the stairs today, you might not ever need to take the escalator because you've kept that muscle alive, you've built it, not for today, not when you need it today, but for when you need it in the future. And I think that's a nice metaphor for organizations. That's a nice metaphor for us as individuals as we build skills for ourselves. So when we do need those in the future, that we're able to go and we're ready to go and we've, we haven't got it totally figured out, but we've done a lot of the work and we've done it in a time where it wasn't measurable, but it was absolutely necessary. Beyond your book, what are some resources that you can recommend to those listening who would like to learn more about some of the topics that we've discussed today? I'm not going to say any specific podcast or anything like that. Obviously, you can see from our work, and I mean you as well, Katie, we're absolutely influenced by people like Clay. I think that you need to read eclectically because even metaphors, for example, you will find insight in eclectic places. You might find it in a novel. You might find it in nature. I love reading about nature and finding metaphors. Obviously, <laughs> we've talked about caterpillars and jellyfish and every type of animal today. But I think that eclectic reading is really important. But it's not just doing it, it's how you do it and doing it deliberately, making the time for it, not fitting it in somewhere. It goes to the how you, you measure your life. Are you doing the small things today that will accumulate in the future and be worthwhile and probably catch you by surprise? So that's been really useful for me. And I wanted to say as well, how will you measure your life for me was a moment where I started to reframe things. I was working in a very busy business. I was 
constantly consumed mentally in that business. Even when I was with my children physically, I was rarely there mentally. And that book was just a new lens for me to go, oh, I can see where this is headed. If I continue on this S curve, it's not going to end well. I need to recalibrate. Yeah. And the distinction also between short term thinking and longer term thinking. Absolutely. And, and I think for all of us that have been touched by clay, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And if I may, I, I might share a story that I learned again through this eclectic reading of a British philosopher who brought a lot of Eastern traditions to the US, a guy called Alan Watts, and a, a story that he shares called The Chinese Farmer. I find this story absolutely beautiful because it helps me realize that when a door doesn't open for you that maybe it wasn't your door. And even down to I might miss a traffic light. And you know, sometimes you're in a rush, Katie, and you might go, Oh, I really needed to get that traffic light. And then I might go, actually, I missed that for a reason. I might have got, you know, in an accident, or to the point about the injuries to answer that question, I consider having those injuries as a lucky time, because it gave me an opportunity to learn about this stuff. And I also started to look at well, why did I get injured? And did I overtrain? And was my mentality right? And I got fascinated by human potential and being able to push it to the edges of potential and achieve the things you want to do and to try things as well. And I even think about the times I got injured because I got injured quite a bit. Whereas, well, maybe I could have got concussed really badly or worse, paralyzed in some way, which happens in the sport. So this story was really, really helpful for me to see those things. So it goes as follows. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we are so sorry to hear about your horse. That's most unfortunate. And the farmer said, maybe. The next day, the horse came back, bringing with him seven wild horses. And in the evening, everyone came back and said, oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. Now you have eight horses. And the farmer said, maybe. The following day, the farmer's son tried to break in one of the wild horses and got thrown from the horse and broke his leg. All the neighbors came over that evening and said, oh dear, that's too bad. And the farmer said, maybe. The next day, the conscription officers came around to conscript people for the army. And of course, coming to the farmer's home to take his son, he had a broken leg, so they rejected him. All the neighbors came over once again and they said, isn't that great? And the farmer said, maybe. And the way Alan Watts ends that, he says, the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity. And it is really difficult to understand whether anything that happens is either good or bad, because you never know what will be the consequences of the misfortune, or you will never know what will be the consequences of good fortune. I think that is why I said that about getting injured, because it helps me reframe things and it helps make sense out of things. And I think that's an important thing for us to do, to be able to navigate the complexity, the VUCA and the dragons that are out there. On that note, Aidan, I want to thank you so much for your time and for your insights today. It was really a pleasure having you as a guest on the podcast. It was an absolute privilege and an honor, Katie. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to us at Disruptive Voice. Until next time, good luck, everybody.